you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to a movie reviewing reappraising genre hopping podcast on the playlist podcast network this is be real my name's chance solem pfeiffer and i'm noah ballard and we're here uh for our second mid-september show celebrating another 20th anniversary this time for the christopher guest dog show picture best in show and it's with a dog buddy hook, picture a dog buddy picture uh, just kidding okay yeah, what movies did you watch? Turner and Hooch, My Dog Skip. I'll be knee deep in explaining Guffman, and you'll be like, Frankie Muniz is a revelation in My Dog Skip. Yeah, a lot of the dogs die in these movies. <laughs> so yes, we're doing the bulk of Christopher Guest's directed films, particularly in his the mockumentary style that he... Um, kind of solidified for himself and his his troop of people in the mid-90s with Waiting for Guffman. And then we're going to do Best in Show, and then we're going to talk A Mighty Wind and For Your Consideration, all of which are currently on Hulu if you want to watch, watch along, which, as we were just saying, is very easy to do since the movies are 85 minutes and readily available. Yeah, absolutely. This is a very accessible category this week. And if you have burning hot thoughts on the Christopher Guest 2016 movie mascots on Netflix, please let us know. Um, but Noah, can't you, after watching these, don't you just know exactly what mascots is like? I think you do. As always, we're thrilled to be on the playlist podcast network. Please like subscribe, leave us a kind rating on Apple podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you might get your shows and give our fellow sibling shows a listen like the discourse, the fourth wall, Indie beat, deep focus podcast, whatever is available. Noah, what is your, what's your Christopher Guest feeling coming into today's show? Uh, for many years, I believed that when people talked to Christopher Guest, they actually were referring to the actor Michael McKean. Uh, so, <laughs> nice. Which is to say a very limited uh, appreciation sure. for him. Um, you I confused him for seen... someone who was in his movies. Indeed. Yeah. Well, they were also both uh, SNL writers and they're sort of like in the same troupe here. So Mm -hmm. I feel like my my misunderstanding is uh, it makes sense. But yeah, which is all to say that I haven't seen any of these movies before. Nice. Um, Spinal Tap? Spinal Tap I have seen. We're not doing Spinal Tap an argument it's a Rob for Rob Reiner movie. Exactly. An argument for another day, but I think that really feels like a Rob Reiner movie. Um, for sure. And yeah, I think once Guest gets full creative control on all these movies, uh, they become a much different thing. It takes him a while. I mean, he's been working 20, 25 years by the time he makes Waiting for Guffman. And I think there's like a sort of interesting thing that so many of the people he works with are sort of like maturing professionally at the same speed as him. You know what I mean? Like um, Eugene Levy? Yeah, and Michael McKean and Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara and like all of these people who um, 
are kind of slow burns career wise. There's no like roller coasters to the top, which makes them like very well suited to kind of sink into these, um, you know, sort of banal subcultures. Um, but I think also makes them very, very comfortable in their own skin and the way that these movies are made, which is largely improvised. If uh, we're going to talk about this, of course, but the approach to all of these movies is that Guest and Levy, who most of them are written together will just have outlines for like what has to be done in the scene and then they'll just roll tape uh in the form of a doc fake documentary interview on whoever's there and they improv their way to whatever's at the end of the note card (laughs) which in some cases is like makes total sense for what you're watching because you're like oh yeah that's why this is the way that it is and in other cases just like how the fuck is that improvise it's remarkable Right. Well, I think, yeah, the movie, the movies find their beats through cliches or tropes of whatever thing they're kind of lampooning. Um, And so you can really, because they're not fully, it's not like Curb Your Enthusiasm or something where it's like scene to scene, there's improvisation, you know, with these comedians that like leads to a plot, especially for the, for the first three, they're all essentially just monologues, you know, with some transitional scene work, you know, that kind of shows, and they're all sort of building to a, the first three are all building to a performance. Mm -hmm. And so it's really just monologues leading up to that performance, which is of course heavily staged and choreographed and not really improvised. Sure. That's just to say that all the monologues are improvised. Right. So give them a little bit of credit in terms of the, the mapping out of this uh, this movie here. But yeah, I think it's you don't have to worry so much about having the scene stay on the rails or whatever, because mostly it's just and I imagine they did, you know, 10 or 20 takes of each monologue. Um, but yeah, for the most part, they're just people saying outrageously silly things in very genuine uh, affects. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Do you want to do just uh, do you want to go chronologically? Sure. So, All waiting right. for Guffman, nineteen ninety six, an aspiring director and the marginally talented amateur cast of a hokey small town Missouri musical production go overboard when they learn that someone from Broadway will be in attendance. The city council of Blaine gave me the responsibility of putting together a show to celebrate the 150th anniversary of Blaine. I took the whole history of the town and I squeezed it like a piece of fresh bread. I think the uh, one really important thing that I learned in working with Corky is that I do indeed have talent. My booby made a kishka, she made it big and fat. Mazeda took one look at it and said, I can't eat that. I have found here in Blaine a gold mine of talent. <coughs> I think Johnny would be so perfect, don't you? He could be the next Keanu Reeve. This is set in the fictional town of Blaine, Missouri which has a sort of hilarious history that's chronicled musically in the in the show that <laughs> climaxes the movie. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a footstool boom in the history of Blaine. There's a alien abduction in the history of Blaine. Um, there's a funny origin story about how the the man for whom the town is named tricked the people into believing they were in California <laughs> like they had made it across 
the uh the great american west and uh they were not they're just in missouri um but yeah here guest plays corky st Clair, who is the eccentric choreographer slash director who holds a lot of sway over these people by virtue of some vague connection to the world of new york theater yeah, he has this funny origin story where, you know, he was like living in New York for a while and kind of like glamorizes the idea that he like spent a lot of money on acting classes and was, you know, in the chorus for a couple of marginally unsuccessful productions until he basically, I mean, and he kind of says, oh, he returned to a simpler existence. But I think the implication is that like he ran out of money and got too old and then relocated to the Midwest. <laughs> Let's talk about the troupe, which is really, honestly, how I want to spend at least 50% of this show, right? And Absolutely. Also got, it got me thinking, so we talk a lot about, you know, directors who have these long careers and the people who end up in their so-called repertory. Um, I think I talked about it with uh, Jonathan Demi the other day. Uh, we've definitely talked about it with Wes Anderson, but never has the description seemed more fitting, I think, than with the Christopher Guest people. Not only because in this movie they literally put on a play, but there is something about the way that they function. We're like in a Wes Anderson movie, like, yes, there are faces you expect to see, but when they pop up, you're just like, okay, that's Bill Murray probably in a perfectly symmetrical, you know, square <laughs> shot that's meant to make you go, hey, that's Bill Murray. Whereas in Christopher Guest movies, it is basically the same group of people mixed around doing some crazy thing in a group in outrageous costumes. It really does feel like a theater troupe. Absolutely. Though I would argue that some of the people reach for different things uh, in each movie and some people don't. Oh, uh, totally. I mean, Fred Willard is definitely in the camp of playing nearly the same role. Um, yeah. But yeah, and Catherine, but Catherine O'Hara, you know, opposite him really does show some depth. But also Parker Posey, similarly, uh, has about one note in all these movies. I mean, all the same people are in them, but people who are sort of further down the chart, like Michael Hitchcock and Don Lake, you either like really, really remember what they did in a specific movie, or you're just like, were they in that one? They must have been, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's very little difference between like a Michael Hitchcock playing like the put upon councilman and Michael Hitchcock put, uh, playing the put upon uh, runner of the town hall in New York. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. That's true. But. Yes, so I think people sort of do slot into those roles and then you have the more dynamic actors like Catherine O'Hara, like Eugene Levy. Even Bob Balaban is so funny because like his one noteness is almost like how they've, you know, figured out who the character is that they're going to write for him, which is such a funny way to make a movie. Like who's going to be the really anxious, right. like, t but also like very, like, you know, simple toned person here yeah who's the uh, character for whom there will be no written jokes right it will just be the fact that he's taking these silly things so seriously that that is the joke so in putting on this play for the town's 150 year anniversary you've got uh was it sheila and rob which is uh sheila and ron sorry that's uh Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara, who run the local travel agency. And the travel agents who've never left Missouri. 
and they are the uh, the so-called veterans of Corky's uh, previous couple plays. And then you have Eugene Levy as Dr. Alan Pearl, the dentist, who's trying to come he, out of his shell. <laughs> he's so funny, too, because he does that that thing really well of, you know, something marginally good will happen. And, like, his confidence just goes up tenfold. And he's, like, trying to contain it under his suit, but he can't quite do it. It's so, it's very, very good. And then Parker Posey is a little bit more of an important character in this one. She's Libby Mae Brown, who is a local teenager who works at the Dairy Queen. Well, that's the thing. It's it's putting these people who are so uncomfortable, even in this very tiny world that they have, putting them <laughs> and, and brushing them up against this idea of, like, you know, the New York art scene and showing how even just the thought of it is upsetting. Right, yeah. They don't come into contact with the art scene, just what the thought of it can do to them. Just the thought of what potentially leaving this town, even temporarily, uh, is is earth shattering. Um, Which feels kind of true and sort of insightful. I mean, I know I've certainly had the feeling of just like far scarier than like you know doing something. Sometimes it's just the idea of something that might force you outside your bubble. Oh yeah, and I, fe- and, and I feel like that's where Christopher Guest he doesn't like the term mockumentary. Because he doesn't think that he's mocking these people. And in a way, I get it. Because these are not like spoofs. This isn't like a spoof on small town life. Um, I think a lot of... Some of the more curious moments in all four films are the actual moments of blanketed seriousness that are just devoted to these weird-ass people's humanity. And those are the moments I found myself often like having no idea what to do with but they were interesting yes and i think this movie and for your consideration like also sort of interestingly bookends a series of films interested in what happens when someone recognizes you Uh, and i think like that's a weird because you're right they're not mockumentaries they're not quite satires like i almost think you could re-pitch all these movies in that kind of netflixian you know vein of the oh here's like a super serious high school cheerleading team and if they make it you know like doing that if you wanted to do a satire of that it would be right before that and maybe that's what uh mascots endeavors to do um but yeah, you're right. They're they're comedies, but like, it's unclear like what they are. You know, mm-hmm. jumping forward just anecdotally, um, in a mighty wind, for example, which is a movie all about folk music, it, it was there was some interest from famous folk people like Arlo Guthrie to be in it, and the producers were like, no, 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 like that would ruin the the satire of it. Yeah, and that's interesting to me. Like this here is so it's both so down to earth but so goofy at the same time the the bubble of these people's subcultural existence is so important Um, yes and that's why you can't have arlo guthrie pop in your bubble you can't have arlo guthrie pop your bubble. you can't have guffman show up um And I think it's interesting, too, the way that Christopher Guest plays with what satire, what is this bubble being popped? You know, I think specifically in this movie, there's that great scene 
um, where Christopher Guest, as the director, appeals to the city council. It's like, I need $100,000 to like put mm-hmm. on this kind of uh, performance of our town history because like we have this guy coming and we like, that's that's what I need to make it the best it can be. And then there's like this pause because it's like it's almost like the movie deciding what genre it is. And mm-hmm. then, of course, you have Larry Miller being like, like laugh. He like breaks out into laughter. and He's like, our, our whole like town budget's only $15,000. Like right. we're not giving you $100,000 to do a one day activity. What I need from you, because you're the bosses of the town, essentially. And I know that is. This is so hard. I mean, there's, there's nothing easy about this. You know, this is like, you know, when you're getting your legs waxed and they whip that thing off real fast. <laughs> That's what this is like. I need more money. Wow. wow. We want you. Need? Need? Steve's right. How, how, much how much you thinking on now? Okay. What I need is $100,000. of course there are comedy things like the like the larger than life sort of like characterizations like it's very funny that this quirky saint Clair character keeps trying to put on very high-minded versions of pretty like middling hollywood fare like when he like backdraft to the musical and he does a whole he does a whole monologue about he's like i really wanted to confront missourians with just with the obtuseness of backdraft the musical (laughs) (laughs) and then of course the the second act of the movie where they actually do put on the play like the play is a good play almost and it's a funny good play and the actual presentation of it sort of shot in that way that it appears to be happening like happening in real time uh is also impressive so yeah what is this movie exactly well the idea for this movie we maybe should have said earlier is uh christopher guest in his like late 40s i guess maybe early 50s was said he went to a friend's kids high school rendition of annie get your gun um and was just inspired by like sort of like of course it's not good but what is it like when amateurs take something so hokey 100% seriously, which is basically exactly how you get this movie. It makes total sense as an inspiration point. I think in this one, funny enough, the troop leader is Christopher Guest. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he gives the funniest overall performance. Like, I think everyone else gives a good performance. But I think for this one, there's also the tension, too, of how this man who is clearly a gay man is accepted in this town and like the the lies that he has to tell about like his quote unquote wife mm-hmm. you know that like just have him accepted by this community who like is too polite to ask right um and so i think he's ultimately got the best tension i don't disagree with you i think what's funny about that observation is i don't think christopher guest is even close to among my favorite performances in any of the other ones no, I agree with that too. Um, but I think he's definitely the focal point and the reason that he's like the iconic image on the cover of the movie and the DVD with the bowl cut and the yellow. Yeah, the whole thing, like the ev- on the T-shirt. <laughs> I mean, his hair in all four of these is hilarious. <laughs> like it goes from this bowl cut 
too perpetually clad in like these goofy hats to mm. a mighty win where he's bald except for like the side sort of Peter, Paul and Mary look. I forget right. if it's Peter or Paul. Uh, and then for your consideration, he has this like shock of sort of, you know, I don't even know what to call he it. He looks like Barton Fink. In he does look like Barton Fink. Yeah. yeah. I think that it's really funny to see how the Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara being put forward as the couple in this movie because Fred Willard is never used that way again, or it's like, you're one of the central people and you're going to play off Catherine O'Hara. Um, <laughs> I love his super confident delivery of, we consider ourselves bi-coastal <laughs> if you consider the Mississippi River one of the coasts. <laughs> Supreme confidence is Fred Willard's like greatest comedic ally. Absolutely. And just sort of your what you're afraid your like dad or grandpa will say at like a family party or something. Exactly. Exactly. Um any critiques of this movie? I think that what all four of these movies lack because of the setup of essentially monologue, monologue, monologue show, uh is like a greater tension. And I mean, it works, I think in a one-off like this, where of course you're like mocking the waiting for Godot kind of setup here, but you're also sort of lampooning, you know, the, the seriousness with local, with which local productions or regional theater are taken uh, by the people putting them on. But I guess I do wish that there was more of like a plot. For all the time we sort of spend with like that weird dinner where Eugene Levy and his wife go out with Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara and there there's like lots of dick jokes and sort of Midwestern anti-Semitism, you you kind of think that something might happen between all those right. like central characters and it just it just doesn't. So like that's one where it's like it's sitting right there. Like we can't do anything with that. That's a little curious. And really the only conflict about the show going off is whether or not Christopher Guest is going to stay as the director. Like, I thought there was going to be more of like, here are the weird things that go wrong at this theater because of, you know, the plots that emerge between the cast members. And yeah, there's really nothing comes of the, uh, of the scenes of them interacting, specifically when it, it does feel like there are opportunities like in that dinner scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Should we tell people how we rate movies and then rate Waiting for Guffman? On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to <clears throat> King Todd, asshole. <clears throat> Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. This one's probably a good good. I think it's my second favorite of the four. 
Yeah, I think it's a good good too. I think it it has such I was being hard on it before, but I think it has such small ambitions that it definitely does succeed in doing the thing it's trying to do while also, you know, making a movie like this on a shoestring budget and like playing with an interesting narrative thing. Like this could almost be a stage production in and of itself just because how it's constructed. Uh, and I think that's that's kind of cool. Um, and then just getting so much talent into one space and having them do something so genuinely and so sincerely uh, is inherently funny. And more so than some of the other ones too, the relationships between the the people in the inner circle of the big to-do and then the the people who are outside of it, they're better in this one with the town council like Larry Miller as the mayor and Michael Hitchcock as the as the council person are really funny um in just the cu- the many cutaways to them as the like <laughs> they know even less about theater than the total amateurs who are in this but they also footed the bill for it so like they just want to see the town portrayed in you know, a, a slightly positive way. They just want to see some pageantry and it's the cutaways to Michael Hitchcock enjoying himself are so funny. There, there's that chemistry and that conflict between, yeah, artistic people in suits that also is felt in, I think, all of these movies. Um, I think it's interesting too, you know, another difference between this and Spinal Tap is we never really acknowledge that there is a documentary being made Mm-hmm. Like nobody ever like has a microphone up or asks a question and nobody ever talks about or no one's ever really aware in in like the real scenes, the, the not the monologues. Nobody ever seems like aware the camera's there, which right. is sort of interesting, too. Uh, so it's less a documentary and more just sort of in the mindset of these people and how they talk about themselves. <laughs> That's true. Shout out to Larry Miller, who goes on the riff. Without this play, like, what is Blaine? And without Blaine, like, what is Missouri? And without Missouri, I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love how in all four of these movies, people just are so sure that wherever they're from and whatever they're doing is important that they like never question that. The only thing they'll ever question is the way other people view them, but never the Mm -hmm. thing that they're doing. So funny. That's a good observation. And it also, you know, that's a similarity to Spinal Tap. But also another thing I think that separates Spinal Tap is like, that's actually like a, like a popular band, like doing something noteworthy. And none of these other movies have that. Yeah. I mean, that is of course like a lampoon of the way in which rock bands are covered and idolized by society and like the self mythologizing that they do. And then of course, you know, a legacy of these kind of self-important documentaries being made about rock bands. Live from Philadelphia, it's the 125th annual Mayflower Kennel Club Dog Show. 3,000 dogs competing for best in show. To think that in some countries these dogs are eaten. Cookie and I work as a team. We met at this dance. He didn't want to dance. I got two left feet. (laughs) I thought he was kidding. But I wasn't. I was born with two left feet. Beatrice has been showing signs of depression. Ever since she saw us having sex, what would you like to say to Beatrice right now? 
sorry you've had to see that. I've been a hairdresser about 14 years. And I uh, went to a show. I asked my ex-wife, who's that? She says, that's Scott. We got yeah. top loin, porterhouse, T-bone. We got everything. So basically, you know, meat. <laughs> Best in show. So 2000 here. A colorful array of characters compete at a national dog show. But it should be stated that they're they're all very white. I don't know, like, what exactly makes Best in Show a level up over these other movies for me. But maybe when you just have this many people doing this much improv, maybe sometimes you just all get a hot idea at the same time. Because sure. the one of the things with, like, a lot of these movies is that the lead-ups of, like, all the people apart going to the thing are a lot slower than when you get to the middle and the thing starts to be sort of mediated. Um, But this one just like opens on just a killer broad comedy joke, which is... Yes, with the the dog therapy scene is is a much better, I think, way into just a microcosm of how serious these people are going to treat these dogs throughout (laughs) this movie. The fact that like the dogs are almost controlling the owners is is so hilarious and i think that first scene you're right like a good snl sketch or something it really just like establishes the tone for the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. so in this one you have it's the flex jerry and cookie so that's eugene and Catherine. they've got the norwich terrier i was rooting for them the whole time as a terrier (laughs) you've got (laughs) you've got meg and hamilton swan the yuppies who we just talked about who opened in the counseling scene parker posey and michael hitchcock who have um it's a beatrice who's a weimariner i don't even know what that is uh weimariner is weimariner i'm sorry uh i think my favorite duo is michael mckean and john michael higgins is uh stefan and scott sure with their shih tzu with their shih tzu yeah and just the dynamic between the two of them uh reminds me a lot of uh the couple from American Beauty, where they're both they both have the same name. It's Scott Bakula and that other oh, guy. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. You've got Sherry Ann and Leslie, who's Jennifer Coolidge, and uh... oh, Leslie is Patrick Crenshaw, the old man who doesn't talk. But Jane Lynch, There's Christy Jennifer Cummings Coolidge. is actually yeah. the yeah, who's the dog handler. They've got this uh, Jane poodle. Lynch, of course, right. They get this poodle called Rhapsody in White who's won the Mayflower Kennel Club Award or whatever the, the prior two years. So they're the they're the big deals. And then Christopher Guest plays Harlan Pepper who comes up from Louisiana with his bloodhound Hubert. Yes. Christopher Guest really takes out a great role with this one with that because he's so good at like modulating his voice. And I think just in contrast to Waiting for Guffman where he was at like a full octave higher and now he's got this deep southern drawl. It's like so funny when you first hear him, especially if you're like binging these movies back to back to back. Right. Um, Especially if you saw Spinal Tap first. I for a lot of years thought that Christopher Guest was British, and he is not. Um, He's just really good at accents. If anything, his, you know, bone-dry comedic sensibility mixing with the fact that he's so talented 
Um, sometimes the funniest thing about these characters is that they're not fucking funny. It's just like there's nothing really that funny about Harlan Pepper. It's just a really convincing chameleonic performance. Um, down to the way that he lopes alongside Hubert is unbelievable. The way he right. has his own owner trod down. That's very funny, yeah. And it's so interesting, too, because these people are obsessed with this one specific thing, the dog show, and showing their dogs. But it also feels like the worlds in which they come from also like have no idea what they're doing. Like It's not oh, like yeah, all their friends sure. are also in it. You know, and there's that great. So I think that is where like the the funny Christopher Guest um, Harlan Pepper moment comes in, where his like his buddy's like, "You gonna get to go fishing at all when you're up there?" And it's like, "No, no. I, I, I'm going to this pretty intensive like dog show thing specifically for that, and then I'm gonna come back." It's and like, even as they bid gonna... him adieu, they're still like, "Good luck fishing or whatever." <laughs> Yeah, he's like, see if you get some vision in or something. Yeah, it's really good. But yeah, it's just showing him as like, how did this particular guy like get obsessed with this dog? And then, of course, his scenes with the actual dog are hilarious, too. And they're like getting in each other's faces with like total commitment to it is very funny. Well, this is the thing about the dogs that I think is like so key to this movie, because as a dog owner, like you can't watch this movie and not have a moment of concern of like, oh, fuck, do I look like that? Do I sound like that when I talk right. to my you dog? you probably do. I definitely do. But here's the thing is, um, you know, a lot of like dog owners when they're like playing or communicating with their dogs are also getting some kind of response in kind from their pets. But the funny thing here is that because these are show dogs and also because they're not the dogs of the actors, the dogs like don't want to have any fucking thing to do with these people. So you get all of the baby talk, but like none of it is reciprocated in even like eye contact from the animal. Yeah. I I think it's funny too, how the actors then like portray the personality for the dogs, you know, whether it's like the, the bee chew toy that uh, Parker Posey's searching for or like the funny that ridiculous nut monologue that Harlan gives about like the conversations that he has with Hubert. Like that's pretty, this is the best Parker Posey freak out of the four movies. Oh, Um, for sure. Hi, um, I'm looking for a, um, a, a toy, a toy. It's, it's a bumblebee. It's like a, um, um, for what kind of animal? For a dog. It's, It's a bee. It's a bumblebee and it's furry. It's about this big. Okay. Right. It's it's a um it's a bumblebee. Stripes on it. Here it is. Is this it? No, that's a bear in a in a bee costume. Okay. Okay. I'm just trying to help. It's about uh, this big. And right. it squeaks in the middle. Oh. Okay, this one squeaks. You know. And I think it's striped. I think the dog will respond to the stripes and it's reminiscent of a bumblebee, I think. This is like a bee. That's a parrot. I think that's what the dog's responding to. But you can look in the box here. We have more, right? Like this one, the yellow and black one there. That's this. That's like a bee. That's it's like a bee. Fish. Well, I this know, is a we fish. know that's a fish, but to you a know dog. What? Just shut up. I'm going to get this and I'm just get out of here. You. Thank you for your help. Okay, this Thank this you. is least like a bee of the ones we have. Here. I didn't ask for your opinion. I asked for a toy that you don't have. I feel like there's more 
comedy in this one. Like there's some good, just like tried and true, like road trip shit with Jerry and cookie when they stop off at Larry Miller's house. Um, cause the, the joke here is that cookie Fleck, played by Catherine O'Hara, um, was like the Wilt Chamberlain of her day. Just like thousands of sexual <laughs> Hundreds <partners>. of boyfriends. <laughs> Hundreds of boyfriends. Um, and they go like 140 miles out of their way to Akron to uh, see like quote unquote friends. And then like Larry Miller is just a pig um, <laughs> toward her. But then the fucking bit that he has of he's a Hosh's negotiator who never saves anyone, but he's just like, that's the business. I've saved zero people. And then the, the son takes the dog on the roof and Larry Miller is just like, hold on, I do this professionally. If you don't come down here right now, you freak, I'm going to put my thumb in your eye. <laughs> oh, man. I think that's great. Because I think, yes, you're right. As you said earlier, that this movie levels up and it lets the movie be a little bit more ridiculous. Yeah. If like waiting for Guffman is something, it's like not ridiculous enough. Like, I think that bit, too, about him literally having two left feet, uh, Eugene Levy, and then them making a point of being like, I thought he was joking, but like, no, you got to look at him. He's actually got two left feet. And then them talking about it in his gate as he's walking this dog around. Of course, it comes up again. So like stuff like that, that it's like it's ridiculous, but it, it would further a plot if it was applied to this kind of thing. Totally. And then the other one, the reason this one is like more firmly in just a all out comedy spice is the last 45 minutes of the movie are narrated by Fred Willard as the play by play or like say the paw by paw uh, commentator Buck Laughlin, who is, I, I can't even like describe the heater that Fred Willard is on for the last half of this movie, but he, <laughs> he's sort of doing like a... He's doing like a washed up Howard Cosell thing. Right. He, can't he clearly has no background in dogs. He doesn't even quite understand like how dogs work. And is really bothering um, who plays his partner. Jim Piddick plays Trevor Beckwith, who's like the, the color commentator. Um, but he's just like, he keeps asking like these really earnest questions of Phil time where like in the final round, he's like, so is there anything that dogs can do now to change the judge's minds? <laughs> I liked the, now tell me, which one of these dogs would you have as your wide receiver on your football team? Which one yep. would be the tight end? <laughs> I mean, we could we could do it for fucking ever, and it's just, it's not as funny as his stream it's of not. consciousness. Um but oh my god, when Beatrice like barks and gets dismissed, and there's he's just like, oh, you don't want to see that. But he's Leaves in disgrace, but still a champion. Like Shoeless Joe Jackson. We still talk about him today. <laughs> now, you know what would be funny? I don't know if they can do this. Uh, uh, just an idea off the top of my head. Why didn't he put the blood on, put on one of those Sherlock Holmes hats, and put a little pipe in his mouth? Are they ever allowed to do anything like that, dress up a dog in a funny way? No, that's, uh, that's not quite what the uh, purpose of these shows is. But it would, I think it would really get the crowd going. You know, you know what I mean? The Sherlock Absolutely, Holmes hat yes. with the pipe. I don't know if you could make it look like smoke's coming out of the pipe. I think that would be a little dangerous. <laughs> I'd get a kick out of it. He also has this just long and varied and weird and stop-start TV career for 30 years before we get to Best in Show. So, like, a lot of his, a lot of these hilarious characters 
come from just like a certain comfort level with like broadcast bullshit and how you yep. like you never stop talking like even when you've said the dumbest thing in the world all you have to say to get out of it he's like and that that's a joke of course and that one's for the crowd that's for the people <laughs> I'm just looking at my notes, and unfortunately, they are all Fred Willard lines. Not to go back to it, <laughs> I just have like five more. When he looks, when he watches John Michael Higgins, John Michael Higgins is dressed up as like a, like a matador, right? Yep. And he just goes, "That is a man having fun with his dog." <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really do think the addition of like those bit actors like John Michael Higgins like Jennifer Coolidge. I love her relationship with Jane Lynch and like, Oh the, yeah. This is the first Jane Lynch one, right? Yeah. This is the first Jane Lynch one. And it's kind of like the terror and the weird expectations between like that very fraught, like here's someone throwing money at this thing just so they win. And here's like the freakazoid that's, you know, going to do it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed Begley Jr. Shows up in this one uh, and has a, such a funny both monologue and scene where you know, if you run a hotel where like a dog show happens, yeah. uh, you've definitely seen everything. And he's so good at playing that. Like, listen, there's nothing you can say that will surprise me. And of course, shouts must be given to the to the terrier songs that I now unfortunately sing to my terrier, including God Loves a Terrier. And the one that they do at the end, which is like. Oh, terrier style that just starts with Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara going front yard, backyard. <laughs> oh yeah, good shit. That'll sort of lay the groundwork for the next film. Yep. Backyard, backyard, on a park. Play with it till after dark. Take it home after a while. Chew it up. All right, best in show is uh, I think pretty incredible. Uh, far and away the best of not far, I guess not far and away, but markedly the best of these four for me, um, and a good good. I would agree. I think this is clearly the best of the bunch. Uh, and I mean, if you, even if you're not into dogs and I'm certainly not into dogs, but you've just seen five minutes at a family party, like after the Macy's day parade that like the, the kennel club dog show, uh, and been like, what the hell is this? Like this movie is a pretty funny response to that question. The other obvious thing that's so great about this movie is that the, the final production is like watchable in its own way. It's a spectacle beyond the control of something that Christopher Guest orchestrated because when, as soon as people and dogs start running around, a different part of your brain is activated of like, like you said, like what the hell am I looking at right now? That has nothing to do with the quality of writing. So it's almost in the, in the, in the, the minimal universe of these movies, it's like a set piece. It's like an action set piece. Right. It's closer to the dramatic structure of a movie like Dodgeball than it yeah. is to the previous movie. Mm-hmm. We should say, just if you're interested in context, so Best in Show is when Christopher Guest, sort of like as an ensemble leader, is kind of 
solidified. Uh, it made like $20 million at the American box office, which is not very much, but also for a movie like this is a good deal. Um, and then you see that... Especially them, then, yeah. Yeah, and then people turn out again for a similar like $20 million for Mighty Wind. And then Guffman and For Your Consideration are more down around five, which means like it did okay at art houses. Um, so yeah, this is the 2000 to 2003 here is sort of like the the brief flirtation with like Christopher Guest is a bankable comedy voice, which is so interesting. Yeah. And again, like I said with the first one, it sort of presages a whole like self-serious genre in itself that Netflix will do where it's like, here's these weird people who are obsessed with this weird thing and right. here's how they compete to be the best at it. Uh, so it's sort of funny to see that kind of mockingly created to just know where reality television is headed in 20 years. That's a great point. Should we go to a mighty wind 2003? You went to the record store. You knew that the new Folksman album would be one word title. Hitchin, wishing, rambling, singing, but, uh, they had no, uh, they had no hole in the center of the records and uh and you if you punched a hole in them you'd have a good time yeah it's just that time. my dad fred knox was an original main street singer he's a dead person now but he, when he was alive he was so happy there had been abuse in my family uh but it was mostly musical in nature there's a kiss at the end of the rainbow i must say i was in awe of mitch and mickey <laughs> who was it Mitch was mysterious and intense. I don't remember much. Uh... Yeah, after the death of fictional folk singer manager, uh, his three biggest acts reunite in New York City for a tribute to his life and works put together by his weirdo kids. <laughs> So those acts are The Folksman, um, which is Harry Shearer, Christopher Guest, and Michael McKean. So Spinal Tap. And basically they had invented The Folksman, uh, I think in the 90s when they were touring Spinal Tap. They yeah. needed like a fake band to open for their other fake band. So that's how they came right. up Right, and it's this. an SNL skit too. Right. Um, then you have the new Main Street singers, fucking sellouts. Oh, uh, it's so funny the notion of what it means to sell out in this, in this yeah, little this world, tiny little bubble. Yeah, uh, the new Main Street singers is a what a non-tet. It's like nine people um, led here by John Michael Nuff Tet, as what's his name keeps saying. He keeps saying Nuff Tet. Right. It just occurred to me, Nuff Tet. <laughs> the uh, the polished up version of the band in 2003 is led by John Michael Higgins and Jane Lynch. And then you have Mitch and Mickey, uh, this romantic sort of will they, won't they duo from the sixties. Uh, Eugene Levy is Mitch and Catherine O'Hara is Mickey. And they have this song called the kiss at the end of the rainbow where they famously kissed on television, uh, it, like right before the final coda of the song. Well, I think that folk historian says a great moment in folk history, possibly human history. <laughs> I would agree with that. I think the thing that it has to say about its cast, 
most proudly is just that Catherine O'Hara is like super talented. Like there's no joke really to the Mickey character. Um, other than, yeah, other than he's doing this weird voice and he kind of like wanders off. There is no real, or he like right. refuses to leave rooms. I mean, that's Mitch. Seeing but him, her character has no joke. Right, right, right. Her character really doesn't have a joke other than she's married to this guy who has no idea who she is. Yeah. <laughs> and who's obsessed with trains. Right. Um, this movie like does the things that we were claiming that we loved about Best in Show. It kind of has those like weird, absurdist moments where it's like, oh, let's spend some time in this guy's train set, you know, or let's have Eugene Levy working on a song and then like someone's having loud intercourse in the next motel room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting to see where that works and where that distracts from what's actually funny about this scene. Right. And in this one, you feel actual like affection from guest coming through for this fake music and again, it's not in Best in Show. It's not as if in Best in Show he was like skewering the world of the Kennel Club, like all these rich assholes and their weird toy. Like, but he also didn't feel the need to embrace it because it was just sort of distant and weird. And in this one, I think sort of the curious thing is like you get the hotel room sex jokes, and then the last half an hour of the movie is just like a folk show that goes off pretty well. <laughs> Which is just sort of a yeah, an interesting and conflictless way into these movies or into from the first act to the second act like i almost feel like when these movies work best like in best in show the first act informs the second act yeah i feel like in this one there just was not basic writing done around like who the groups were I mean, like, I get the tension between Mitch and Mickey and the will they, won't they extending even to, like, will they kiss on stage these many years later. But, like, what's the... When I say, like, what's the deal with the folksmen, I mean, like, what is their deal? Like, what is their narrative deal? And I don't think this movie, like, really ever answers that question. Right. I think some of the answers that comes up, especially for the folksmen, end up being a little cheap. Um like, I think Harry Shearer being, uh, like, a trans person at the end is, like, not the best way into the evolution of his character that's, like, never been established that he right. was looking for his gender identity. Just a loud gag at the end. Well, it's just because he's, the like, the baritone singer. So, of course, like, he would be the one who feels like he's in a woman's body. There yeah. were some good bits in this, though. I think one of the funniest bits that, frankly, will become the whole conceit of the next movie is Ed Begley Jr. being this, like, Swedish Jew who, like, can't... Or maybe he's not Jewish. He's just trying to affect Judy or affect this Yiddish thing to appeal to the Jewish family that he's working with on this broadcast. Uh, but, like, there are these outrageous moments where he just, like, uses these goofy Yiddish words to describe how he's feeling about things. The nachas that I'm feeling right now, because your dad was like mishbucha to me. When I heard I got these tickets to the folksmen, I let out a geshrei, and I'm running with my friend, running around like a vildachaya, right into the theater, in the front row. So we've got the shbilkas, because we're sitting right there, and it's a mitzvah, what your dad did, and I want to try to give that back to you. A kinahor, I say. And God bless. But again, it's... I... 
when Fred Willard just like shows up to vamp in the middle of the movie, like that's my favorite shit. He's Mike LaFontaine from High Class Management. And it's the same joke from the next movie where it's just how fucking funny is it in the 2000s to see a man this old with blonde highlights and hair gel. It's just unimpeachably funny. Let's start right out. Hey, what happened? As you know, back in 1970, I start on a series called what happened? And every time something would go wrong, I would look at the camera and say, Hey, what happened? <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that and a lot of other catchphrases. I got a real red wagon. <laughs> and uh, I can't do my work. And I believe I was the first one to use the phrase, I don't think so. But it only lasted a year. And that's good because... Guest has said that um, a lot of times when he lets Fred Willard improvise his monologues, that Willard out of all these people is the one where Guest will yell cut and Willard will be like, I'm not done yet. (laughs) 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 Gotta keep going. (laughs) Which just feels right. Because again, it's it's the fucking cheap suit, but like hours paid TV broadcaster thing of just like, don't, the only thing you don't want is dead air. Keep going. Talk yeah, keep it. speaking, keep making the jokes. If you don't get the reaction you want, just like try something else. Uh, oh my God. But I think, and that's funny, like matched up with uh, the main st- or the new Main Street singers and just their sort of like cult family dynamic of like yeah. uber positivity. Um, and I love to the, just the, the sort of throwaway line. Um, John Michael Higgins as as Terry Boner, where he's like, I was abused as a child, mostly musical abuse, or my family was abusive, mostly musical abuse. Yeah. And like, that's good. so funny because like, it, they're, and then the, they, the fact that they're making that guy wear the, the costume for three weeks, 30 right. days or something, just to, like, as a hazing to be in the band. Like there is something untoward going on with these like cheery folk singing songwriter player people. Totally. It's just weird to me that the movie seems unwilling to tease out an actual joke. Like the thing that's funny about the new Main Street Singers is just so like lightly funny. It's just like right. you do, I think the joke is what you don't need that many rhythm guitars or like when you have that many people who are that good at that sort of faux innocent Brady Bunch thing, like they will start to like strut their stuff in weird ways. But like, those aren't like actual defined comedic takes. It's just like a few, like it's funny to watch them play a song in earnest. Right. And it sort of plays in this idea. Yeah. It could go further with the fact that like, I mean, it's so funny that Jane Lynch like clearly had a porn career before she came to, yeah, the, the new Main Street singers, but it like doesn't play at the fact more that this may be, I mean, it's a pack of strays and that's what's appealing about them, but it also could be a cult that like looks at people who really like need a second chance. You know, even Parker Posey's, you know, talking about going through rehab and stuff gets like a little dark in terms of whatever this band is doing to people. That's kind of her party down bit too, right? Is that she has this like crazy rampant sexualized past, but is now just like a, like a wide eyed, like happy person. Right. Exactly. This movie I think is, is nice. Um, I watched it not that long ago just for fun and then rewatched it today and was kind of like a, you know, that's, 
that's probably enough. Because again, the takeaway I think was just like, Catherine O'Hara is so goddamn talented. Um, and in our last episode, we talked about all these different people who are, you know, faking their way through their instruments and their vocals. And it should be said that all of these people are playing and singing live in the room. Yes. You can hear it. Um, yeah, they actually recorded the concert in real time. Yeah, you can tell. It to- and it totally actually has that um, PBS 4 p.m. on a Sunday production style which is also very apt like they just they they really nailed a lot of things but i think at the end of the day it's probably a good bad i just don't think there is enough like jokes uh to carry this through to a consistent like rewatchable right yeah and much like waiting for guffman the performance goes off without a hitch like even though there are things that could potentially thwart it um, the songs in Waiting for Guffman are funnier, though. Right, exactly. Because like, these are just legitimately dance. good folk songs. It's like, you know, a dozen That Thing You Do's that sound like they could be from the heyday of the folk movement. Right. But I agree with you. I think this is a good, bad... Um, yeah, there's just not enough, like, plot-driven bits like that. Like, these weirdo characters, other than potentially, like, not showing up at their call time don't have enough of their own like hubris or weird whatever to like get so in their way as to feel like the last performance has any real stakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is this music really all feels like music that Lowen Davis would have heckled in 1961. Like this is all the stuff that that, that guy, um, that guy who's staying with Carrie Mulligan plays. That's just like, I love you and the folk music. And Loa Davis is like, what is this bullshit? <laughs> like it should Absolutely. be, it should be sadder. It should be about more dead babies. And it should be about sailors. Like he would just sit in the offense and on the audience and rip these people to pieces. All right, let's go to 2006. And for your consideration, three actors learn that their respective performances in the film home for Purim a drama set in the mid-1940s American South are generating award season buzz. Could I have your name, please? Hack, Marilyn Hack, stage 11. You were in that prison movie where you, you punched that little girl in the face. Nope. Marilyn Hack made quite the splash for her portrayal of Imogene, the blind prostitute. And you know what they say about blind prostitutes? You really have to hand it to them. <laughs> We can cut that out. I don't know why I got that. I'm your agent. There is nothing more important to me in my life than than you. Excuse me. Victor Allen Miller, the venerable Broadway veteran best known as Irv the Footlong Wiener, now starring in the Sunfish Classics feature Home for Purim. Where the heck have you been? <laughs> oh, aren't you nice? Well, uh, actually, I've been teaching in... Uh... Well, that's a rhetorical question. And action. What kind of girl doesn't want to meet a nice fella? I did meet. A nice fella. Her name is Mary Pat. Or am I just going to sugar? Mama! And cut! I was so surprised that this one is not a faux documentary. Well, that was the weird thing about it, is that, like, it is a faux documentary if you believe that the people on screen are real, but otherwise it's just like a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because we're just like throwing these on on Hulu, right? And I, after watching three of them, like I fully expected every single one to be this way. Yeah, and this I'm is like, just Wait, like an ensemble. There's no directed cameras. 
Yeah, this is just a an ensemble comedy that's 90 minutes long. Right? Yeah. Which, it's different, but it's also exactly the same in the sense that you are... You start it's out the at same, the same, yeah. It's the same the tone. Bottom of, the bottom of this pyramid following, what, like 16 different people. And it's all culminating this time in awards season. The potential right. for Oscar nominations. I think, and I'm going to, I guess I'll, I'll sort of show my hand pretty quickly here. I think sh- using this model of here's a bunch of shit that matters so, so much to a bunch of very specific people, but ultimately like doesn't really matter in general, doesn't work when you apply it to like a Hollywood production and the Oscars. The world's not small enough. I think even from the open of this movie, which is just like Catherine O'Hara doing, you know, like a lip read on uh, or doing like because she's seen it so many times uh, doing the lines from a black and white movie, you know, all the way to the kind of sad fucked up ending that this movie arrives at. Uh, there's it's weird because like that these people are taking it so seriously like isn't funny it's 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 real but then it also feels like a hollywood that isn't quite my understanding of hollywood right um from whatever experience we have observing the industry and watching movies but also from like other movies like state and maine or something um oh now you're talking my language with state and maine that's right. But uh, yeah, that is the comparison here where it's like, oh, here's a mid-budget movie that's like suddenly generating awards heat and here are the people who have been doing it forever who maybe haven't gotten there just uh due. But yeah, it's more of a process working place drama or comedy or something than the other 3 are. Well, it also has this sort of strange relationship with my understanding of how award season works. Like nobody says, oh, she could win a, an award for this movie on the second day of shooting. You know, award buzz starts to build like in film festivals and, you know, when movies are going to come out. But this movie's still in production. So like the timing of the whole thing is very strange to me. It's and... Well, I mean, if the movie is allegedly a critique of the industry and how these rumors get started about whatever, but then to have like your main publicist played pretty funnily by John Michael Higgins, not even knowing what the Internet is in 2006, like that's just that's just nuts. I mean, I guess you could make the joke. That all of this was false expectations and nobody ever even heard of this movie or saw this movie? That would make sense. But that's not... But then when you get down the line and you start to see the media mechanisms that they go through and the person who ultimately does get a nomination like that, that idea that this was all just fake and they were in their own little world, you kind of blow that read too. Well, because they do seem to be interfacing with Christopher Guest's like critique on like mtv and access hollywood culture and charlie so they're like and charlie rose that's so funny i mean and that's those are the best moments where it's like okay here's an actual critique on fred willard doing carson daly or or (laughs) ryan seacrest or whatever like that's funny and jane lynch as his sidekick they're so good Uh, 
or even with like the morning chat news show that they do like there is a critique there i frankly think the funniest thing in this whole fucking movie is the monkey uh that's helping the weather girl tell the weather to los angeles (laughs) and like the 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 crass sexual (laughs) jokes that this australian accented orangutan puppet is making uh, is so funny and weird, but that's the thing. Like, that's a funnier Hollywood read of like these people are so shameless that they will have um someone do what do you uh, ventriloquism? Yeah, it's like on a five a.m. wake up morning right. show totally. because like that's the only way to get people interested, just to do something stupid. I like that this one too has um where Fred Willard is concerned. I want to throw out, I think he's also maybe trying to do like Mario Lopez a little bit, but oh, for sure. But also again, it needs to be said a 70 year old man with a bleach blonde <laughs> mohawk. <laughs> and in that one scene where he like comes to find them, it's like the tip of it's poking out his backwards ball cap. Oh my is so God. funny. And he's doing the junket interviews and he's like, he talks to Catherine O'Hara, whose character in the movie has a terminal illness. And, he goes, Marilyn Hag, you're dying, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Hello Porum. <laughs> Hello Porum. <laughs> oh, man. He's all, and the fucking thing at the end where he like TMZs his way into interviewing the people who weren't nominated is the funniest, darkest shit. Like just every time Fred Wheeler gets in one of these movies, R.I.P. He just like, he just raises, <laughs> just raises the intensity of the comedy so much. No, the right house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. Marilyn Hack. And trash. What a juxtaposition. We know that. And oh, what happened? What but the was important that? thing is people if you you get close to being nominated, that's no, what it's all it's about. Not right. It's it's a big tease. Cause four out of five of those girls are gonna lose big time. Can I ask Way you? Way worse than me today. I didn't even get nominated. I'm not gonna what lose. Happened? But what happened? I'm you were not doing... gonna lose. All right. All right. How can I think I'm going if I'm not nominated? That's that's what I mean. You came this close Stop to being it. nominated. I don't think you could have done that. I'm going to go to France. That's what a, for? How'd the French girl get in? Oh, well, that French movie drives me nuts with the writing on the screen. But that's French. I always think it's late-breaking it's news. French. It's yeah. not legal. Then I'm going to come back. Catherine O'Hara is, uh, again, just like shines in this movie. You see a little bit of Moira Rose in this performance. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, that's definitely she... the logical next step for her. The faded starlet. Just the thing. Nothing is funnier than Catherine O'Hara flicking her you know eyes to the upward corner of her head to search for a profound emotion it's just great it's just like you know it's the it's the eye movement equivalent of john lovett's screaming acting that's the thing like if you're going to make a movie that yeah critiques hollywood or critiques filmmaking or critiques the way that like you know great stories are taken away to in service of something very commercial to then like weirdly load it up with the, you know, name actors of the comedic moment, like Ricky Gervais or having like John Krasinski in a movie called paper badge where he like just discusses process uh, or Sandra. Oh, or like really like any of these big people or Simon people who Helbert. go on to be big people. Uh, 
it it feels like kind of a sellout itself for a critique of like that whole Hollywood thing. And I also just don't quite get I mean, maybe Christopher Guest is like making a bigger commentary that like the Harry Shears of the world like should have gotten more recognition for how much work they've done over the years and how many like iconic voices or things they or wiener commercials they've done. Uh, and then but maybe brushing with that kind of fame isn't the right thing. It's just like finding where you're comfortable I'm not sure what the larger read is on it, but much like trying to make a joke out of like the religiosity and the celebration of Purim for like contemporary Jewry, uh, it it doesn't add up to like a whole lot for that many people. I don't think like you really have to be invested in this crew right. to like get the jokes. I think. Wait, can I, as an Ed Begley Jr., can I ask you a question? What is Purim? So February Purim is sort of holiday. like the. Yeah, it's sort of like the Halloween equivalent for Jews. It's like where you sell and you like wear costumes and make a lot of noise. Uh, and it's about, I mean, it goes back to like a biblical story of the Jews being kicked out of a particular region. And the the king's wife, the queen, Esther, steps up to say, hey, this guy you're listening to, your advisor, Haman, is just like anti-Semitic. And you should actually let the Jews stay and like run Haman out on a rail. So mm. they like read this book called the Megillah. And when Haman's name comes up, you like the, those noisemakers that they had in that one dinner oh, scene, right. like that's what you, the song they were going through was essentially like a, a musical version of the Megillah. And every time Haman's name comes up, you, you, you make a noise, but like to say that like she's Haman and we should make a noise, you know, when the mother's name is said is like such a stupid, like inside, very like conservative Jewish joke that like uh-huh. really only felt like it was meant for me and not uh-huh. anyone else. Huh. <laughs> I didn't dislike this movie. It's, it it's just, it's a funny category because like, all of these movies are doing the same thing. It is the same formula. Like, over and over. So you're just, like, looking for these weird little wrinkles where, like, where did the formula work better than the average and where did it fall short of the average? Um, and this one, I think, falls short maybe just because of the choice in topic, like we said at the top. Um, right. And it doesn't have, like, a natural performance moment of it. Like, the movie scenes are right, clever, I guess. But, like either the movie has to culminate with like a 15 to 20 minute excerpt of the movie they're making or has to be like at the Oscars or you need something where you can really lean into the strengths of Christopher Guest as a storyteller to put on the pageantry that like the other characters are talking about. That's a good point. That is really missing is my sort of connection to watching the movie being made and that's completely absent it's basically replaced by the montage of all the award season interviews there's so many better critiques of hollywood made around this era like whether it's you know curb your enthusiasm or episodes or adaptation you know ed ed wood even you know, it's just sort of a strange... And I mean, if you really want to go for like absurdist and bizarre, like Synecdoche, New York will come out uh, two years later. Yeah. So I just don't know where this fits. 
because it like it breaks the the best thing about these kinds of movies in trying to take on something so big and then doesn't really make that interesting of a commentary on it and it isn't funny frankly so Hmm. i think it may be a bad bad from me i don't believe that it is like technically good and earnest and well-constructed in the way that mighty wind is nor of all if i was going to put on these movies again i would just watch guffman or i would watch best in show every night for the rest of my life so yeah probably is a bad bad i'm with you i think should we move to mascots mascots (laughs) we didn't watch mascots (laughs) i think now we just have to move to my personal note on christopher guest's legacy which the most important part of his body of work is that my mom will forever confuse any of his movies with both wes anderson and the coen brothers so congratulations to him for that wow are we gonna get more christopher guest movies how old is this man is he in his 70s 72 nothing in the pipe right now according to my imdb maybe we got to update to upgrade to imdb pro it feels so cool and unlikely that you could build this little 10-year run around this hyper-specific comedy sensibility with all these people who are like so famous but not that famous. Um, and then in the middle of it, like actually make a little money and um, establish this comedic voice that sort of Spinal Tap just like runs through it, sort of supporting you all the way. Uh, it's a It's a really cool career um and i certainly enjoyed knowing about this this troop of people and watching their different angles and watching them just like repeat the same stuff over and over again um yeah i don't know if we'll get more of it i don't know if we like need need more but this was this was fun i would love i mean either guest or some other filmmaker to sort of take up the mantle of this and start making those aforementioned like Netflix spoofs, like to see, you know, this idea of obsession and being so self-involved that you like only see your own world. And maybe we'll like see that in some of the now green, uh, now green lit Nicolas Cage, Tiger King (laughs) series that's being made. Uh, But it would be interesting to, yeah, like really get it or whether it's like cheer or some of these other funny docs, uh, I'm watching the Nexium one now on HBO, The Vow. Like, there's just such ripe uh, things for comedy, especially totally. right now when everything seems so serious and sad. It's a good point because the living in an internet age with like these movies, par- part of the failing of these movies, so that by 2006 it's like making a joke out of people not knowing what the internet is. But you're also like, does this movie know what the internet is? Um, but the the way it's that the we, one with the email, the one that we mediate, the way that we mediate now. Um, only reinforces these bubbles, like you said, of like people thinking that their thing is the most important thing in the world and that is it. Um, we are, yeah, we're ripe to just like continue this this idea. I'm with you. That would be funny if somebody did like a, one of these Instagram influencer houses kind of documentary about. Totally. Yeah, I think there there are these funny subcultures that exist, even ones that are like, very much public facing, but uh, yeah, filled with these people obsessed with their own interests. Uh, and yeah, that's, let's make that our movie chance. Sure. We... Get the next generation of, we got to get like, uh, who should we get? Like just the cast of party down. Ken Marino, they're, they're <laughs> Lizzie Kaplan. 50 year old men now. <laughs> Dang it. Um, 
Bo Burnham? <laughs> Alright, we gotta end the show. Noah said the two words that end the show. Jake Paul? <laughs> Holy shit. Um, Alright. That's about as, that's as, uh, as much as I can do, guys. We'll see you next time on Be Real. God loves a terrier. Yes, he does. God loves a terrier. That's because small, sturdy, bright, and true. They give their love to you. God didn't miss a stitch. Be it dog or be it bitch. When he made the Norwich merrier with its cute little derriere. Yes, God loves a terrier.